Showtime at the Apollo, the epic tale of Harlem's legendary theater. I have on the line with me author Ted Fox, as well as the illustrator of the new graphic novel, James Otis Smith. And welcome both, Ted and James, WLRN and Folk and Acoustic Music. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, I just finished reading the, the graphic novel. It's not going to be released till early next year. You both are going to be at the Miami Book Fair International. And this is just a fascinating story. Uh, Thank you. Ted, it's originally, uh, this is a new graphic novel, but the original book, Showtime at the Apollo, is a few years old, right? Well, actually, it, it was originally published by Holt in 1983. And it's been updated a number of times, published in a number of different editions. Um, and actually, currently still exists as, as an ebook, um, the latest edition. So yes, it's it's been, I think, fair to say, the definitive book on the Apollo Theater since it came out in 1983. Before I talk specifically about the Apollo Theater, the latest edition of this book is this graphic novel, and uh, it was illustrated by James Smith, who's also on the line. How did this idea come about? Well, the idea it, was Ted's, actually, um, and. He his daughter was having a gallery opening, and he met a cartoonist that I know, and one thing led to another. That's James Otis Smith, who's the illustrator of the book. What kind of challenges did illustrating the book bring to you, James? There's a ton of reference material in it. Um, I actually had to build up a little 3D model of the interior of the Apollo just so that I could give myself a lot of different angles to draw, you know, and uh, also just getting the images, just getting the faces down, you know. Um, I don't love doing doing likenesses, so that was a bit of a challenge. Well, that's an incredible challenge, because not only do you have likenesses, but you have the, the best popular stars of the past century. It's everybody, it, it, and he did a heck of a job uh, illustrating probably literally hundreds of different people who are part of this story. So um, I, I'm sure it was a challenge for James, but, you know, he really came through, and um, it, it's it's pretty amazing to see. But I want to get more into the story of the Apollo, but James, let me ask you one more question. Were you familiar with the story of the Apollo? Not as much as, as what is covered in the book. One of the best parts about working on it actually was that I would Ted would mention an artist that I wasn't quite familiar with, and then I would look them up, and then I would be listening to them as I was as I was drawing them, getting a bit of a, of a music education as I was drawing the book. I, I have one more question to ask. I hope I, you're not offended by anything, but no, no. Are you are you African American? Yes. And did you feel like you were connecting to your roots? Uh, that's a good question. Um. The Apollo is kind of, it, we talk about this a little in the book, too. The Apollo is kind of, uh, it, it's kind of just evolved into a legend, and it no longer, it, 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 it's not really a place in your daily life anymore. Um, so I think one, one, one of the more interesting aspects of the book was just getting to think of it as just, the place people would go on the weekends when there was an act in town and not necessarily the biggest musicians in the world, you know? James Otis Smith, who's the artist for the Showtime at the Apollo, who's going to be at the Miami Book Fair International. Also on the phone is Ted Fox, who wrote the original book, Showtime at the Apollo. Ted, did you have to rewrite the book for the graphic novel? 
Yeah, I mean, the, what what happened with this book is basically I adapted my original book into the, the graphic novel form and came up with uh, a, a narrative. So it, it basically distills the the larger story, the more in-depth, definitive story that's told in the original book into what I hope, and James and I, I hope, is just a compelling narrative from even before the Apollo was the Apollo all the way through. So you can, it, it becomes an, an epic tale, which is why we titled the book The Epic Tale. That was sort of the concept. And that's what it was, because, you know, there's never been any place like the Apollo and there probably never will be again. And this graphic novel, Showtime at the Apollo, tells the, the birth of it, the development of it, the growth of it, the problems that occurred, the changes that occurred over the years, how the Apollo then adapted to that and um, kept going and kept you know fighting within this sort of racist system in this country that it was forced to live within and kind of that the final irony that as the civil rights movement changed the apollo kind of suffered because it was no longer necessary in the way it it, it had been for so many decades when uh, african americans didn't have access to basically every aspect of uh, performance and and so forth in this country so there's that, and then as the kind of coda is the rebirth of the Apollo. This is very much a thriving institution now. People probably know about it from the Showtime at the Apollo television show, which, you know, for a dozen or more years has been an extremely popular version of the famous Amateur Night that was shown for years and years, was, was broadcast for years and years, late at night after Saturday Night Live, and continues in different ways. So. A lot of people, millions of people, know about the Apollo from that. Now, the other thing, too, is that the graphic novel sort of assumes that for our audience, that may be how how they know about the Apollo. And we kind of start with the modern Apollo, where President Obama goes and sings Al Green, or Paul McCartney plays there now, or U2, or Springsteen, or Jay-Z. So we start with that, but then I'm very quickly telling people, you know, it wasn't always like this. This was how things started, and this is why. Why does Obama want to be there? Why does Paul McCartney and Jay-Z and Springsteen and all these people, why do they want to be at this little theater? You know, there's a reason for it. There's a history behind it. There's facts behind the myth that these people are all responding to. And that's what we're doing with uh, Showtime at the Apollo, the epic tale, the graphic novel. We're telling that story in that way. It's a fascinating story because it also reflects the history of America and the popular culture in America. Uh, What what significance? uh, The the Apollo is located in New York City, 253 West 125th Street. What's the significance of that address? 125th Street is the main street of Harlem, which is the greatest, perhaps, black community in America, certainly historically the greatest black community in America, in what is the greatest city in America, 
so it is literally by definition at the absolute epicenter of everything that has happened in African-American popular culture, politics, society over the past 85 years. This January in 2019 is the 85th anniversary of the Apollo. When it started, it was a, was it a burlesque house? It was. What does that mean? What, what happens at a burlesque house? I mean, we're, you know, we know what burlesque is, but this was strippers, barely dressed people, uh, in addition to, you know, comics and, and so forth. You have to remember that 125th Street was white when the Apollo was originally built in, in 1913 and really was white right into the early 30s when the Apollo first became the Apollo. So this was a white neighborhood. Black Harlem actually started further uptown. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting history because when they built the first subway in New York in, uh, I guess, 1904, it opened. The the terminus was way uptown uh, in Harlem and above uh, 125th Street by 10, 12 blocks. And uh, they built so many apartments, they had actually overbuilt, the developers overbuilt in anticipation of the subway. And only because of that glut of housing were they literally forced to rent to black people. And so that's why Harlem actually started further north. And that's where in the teens and in the 20s, you had the original great black theaters the Lincoln and so forth, but most importantly, the Lafayette Theater at 132nd Street and 7th Avenue. And that's actually where the people who, uh, Frank Schiffman, uh, who who ran the Apollo from uh, just about its inception through through it, its end, that's where he actually started was at the Lafayette. I'm speaking with Ted Fox. Also on the phone is James Otis Smith, who's the author and illustrator of Showtime at the Apollo, the epic tale of Harlem's legendary theater. And both author and illustrator is going to be at the Miami Book Fair International. Well, tell me what a show was like back in the 1930s. You said there's comedy and and I, I think maybe the burlesque side of it has kind of toned down. But you mentioned in your book that you could spend a, uh, just a measly amount of money and spend the whole day there. Well, yes. In the earliest days, first of all, first of all, let me set the scene by today when we think of a theater that presents music, it's you, you, they will have an act on the weekends who will have one show, possibly a late and an early show, and that's it. The way the Apollo did it and the way show business worked back, you know, for most of its existence right into the, the early 70s, a whole package of people came in starting on a Friday and they would be there for the entire week, 31 shows a week. When you played the Apollo, you played 31 shows a week. So, you know, for, it, it was, it was very difficult for, for the performers, although they weren't coming in again. It's not like now where you go and, and see a show and it's one performer, perhaps an opening act and the headliner will do an hour and a half or two hours. These, were in the earliest days what they called reviews where, you know, you'd have a comic, you'd have the band, you would have maybe a featured singer, dancers, even acrobats and stuff like that. 
And, you know, people would basically come in. The band would have a featured number or two. The orchestra, the band would, would play for the other acts on the bill, including the dancers. And uh, that's the way those shows worked. So in the early days at the Apollo, you could literally come in early in the morning. The first shows started at 10 a.m. Later it went to noon, but 10 a.m. in the early days. And you could stay all day. They didn't, you know, as they call it now, turning the house. They didn't turn the house. You paid your money, you could stay. And people did that. It, that it's one of the reasons why the Apollo became so beloved in the community is that it was almost literally a home away from home. I mean, mothers would come with their babies and, you know, pack a lunch and spend the day. Uh, you know, it was cheaper than a babysitter. Um, and you could stay and, and watch multiple shows if, if you wanted to. I found it interesting in your book that the owners at the time, Frank Schiffman and Leo Brecker, the interest they took not only in booking the shows, but also the, the development of the acts. Yes, and this is another reason why the Apollo was so important beyond just being another theater. As many, I interviewed many, many performers for this. Uh, for this book back in the day. The book is really told from from their viewpoint and their words, as it is in the graphic novel. And what they all said to me was, you know, the Apollo was home. That was number one. Number two was that it was a school. What happened at the Apollo is both the management, the production team, and the, the acts themselves would help each other. And it was a training ground where so many acts, uh, I mean, I interviewed, for instance, Gladys Knight, who for years, she was an opening act, and she would come in there as a, as a youngster, as a teenager, young teenager, and that's how she learned the ropes. And then, you know, as other people came in, she helped, and she became more established and more confident as a performer. She helped others. That's the way it worked. There used to be a term in the music business that doesn't really exist anymore called artist development, which is something, you know, that, that was sort of the key to show business of all kinds. The Apollo did the most grassroots kind of artist development. It was artists helping artists, and it was also some of the great people. I mean, Frank Schiffman is a controversial guy. Some people say he was a genius, a great showbiz genius. Some people say, hey, you didn't know what he was talking about. You know, he, he just was someone who took advantage of, of black talent. He did. They did. And then his son, Bobby, who ran it for years, starting uh, in the early 60s, they spent a lot of time working on the acts and developing the acts. And they kept copious, detailed notes on each performer, each performance of each performer over the years, noting, you know, their improvement or sometimes, unfortunately, their demise. Have you seen these uh, notes? Have you seen? Have you come yes. across these notes? Yes, and we actually, James illustrated a couple of them in the book, um, and you can find them online. They're actually, they're, the entire collection is available at the Smithsonian, the Frank Schiffman collection. You can actually make an appointment and go and see them and look at the actual cards, hold them in your hand and actually see them, which is an amazing experience, you know, to hold Billie Holiday's actual Apollo Theater index card showing her progression. And then, you know, as she started 
unfortunately succumbing, you know, to, to drugs and so forth, her sort of downfall, and you, you can see it. And so they're all there, and, and we do illustrate at least a couple of them in, in the book. But it's, it's a pretty incredible way, you know, to see how, how this works. I'm speaking with Ted Fox and also illustrator James Otis Smith. The new edition of Showtime at the Apollo, the epic tale of Harlem's legendary theater, is now a graphic novel, and uh, both author and illustrator is going to be at the Miami Book Fair International. I'm sure with the graphic novel, you're going to be turning on a lot of young folks onto people have never heard of, and they could just look at James Brown and go to the Internet and say, oh, that's what James Brown sounds like, or Dionne Warwick or... Leslie Uggams. Let me go through a quick list of people who have won at the amateur nights at the at the Apollo. We got Pearl Bailey, Billie Holiday, Ruth Brown, Leslie Uggams, Gladys Knight, Jimi Hendrix, uh, James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Screaming Jay Hawkins. This is just the this was the open mic amateur night that these people appeared at. Yeah, it wasn't quite an open night. It was, in fact, very a, a difficult thing. I mean, this became. You got to understand, Apollo, Amateur Night at the Apollo was, for decades, it was the way. If you were a young African-American performer uh, and you were looking for a break, this is how you did it. This is before American Idol and America's Got Talent. What they became came from what the Apollo did for decades, starting in the, in the 1930s. So... If you were a white kid and, you know, you wanted a break, I don't know, maybe you, you might go to Hollywood and try and get, get discovered. Or You mentioned in the book that Buddy Holly was at the uh, Apollo. Oh, sure. There were plenty of, of white performers who, who played at the Apollo. I mean, one thing about the Apollo is that, and one thing about, I think, black audiences and, and black community in general that I've seen for, for many, many years is there's a, a wide open acceptance. And at the Apollo, the thing was to do your best. If you were a performer and you gave your all and it almost didn't matter. I mean, obviously, most of, of the performers who played there were the performers who were most popular in the African-American community. But, yeah, Buddy Holly, Charlie Barnett, there were white performers. Well, no color line drawn. It was what appealed to the audience in Harlem. You Not only did you not have color lines, but it seems you didn't have music lines either. How did gospel develop? You know, this is another thing, too, that what made the Apollo unique is their adaptability. Think about it now. I mean, this is a theater that for decades, four decades, 40 years or more, led the way in the presentation of everything from swing to bebop to rhythm and blues, to soul, to rap, the latest in dance and comedy. There's no place anywhere that, is, that has ever done anything like that before that has, is not known, as you say, for just one type of music or one type of sound that, ha- in fact, has been at the forefront of all of them. And in many cases, led in the uh, initial presentation of all of them. And gospel is a really great example of that because... Before the Apollo started doing its gospel shows in the 1950s, there was no such thing as commercial gospel music. And it was considered church music. It was very popular in the churches. And there were, were, of course, gospel performers who made a lot of money playing churches and selling records. 
but never been presented in a commercial theater before. It was considered, you know, the Apollo was considered the devil's house. It was not proper. It was not something that, that, that gospel performers would even think of. But this great, great guy by the name of Thurman Ruth, who was a gospel performer himself and a gospel disc jockey, he came up with the idea in the 50s as rhythm and blues was happening, and he saw how the Apollo, which also led the way in the presentation of rhythm and blues, started doing the R&B reviews, which, uh, you know, Alan Freed and others, you know, later also at the same time really adapted for rock and roll. But he said, hey, you know, I think I can make this happen. They thought he was crazy. They thought it was a crazy idea to try bringing in gospel music into the Apollo. And he and Bobby Shipman had to really convince and coerce the gospel performers that they should be doing this, that it would be legitimate to do it, that, you know, it would not be a sin to perform gospel in the Apollo. In fact, it would be proper and legitimate because you would have an opportunity to present your spiritual message to an audience that might not be there for it otherwise. So they did it and became extremely popular. And some people have said that the gospel shows of the Apollo were the most incredible ever there. It's a hard, hard to pick which are the most incredible shows, but they were certainly up there with them. And in fact, for for the gospel shows, they got so wild that people got the spirit. You never really knew what was going to happen. Bobby Schiffman used to have trained nurses on hand to deal with people who would just be overcome. And that happened all the time. Yeah, those, those were incredible shows. Ted Fox, author of Showtime at the Apollo, along with James Otis Smith, illustrator of the new version of Showtime at the Apollo. I found it a fascinating read, a, a very enjoyable read, and you know, I'm just kind of upset that I missed the shows of Screamin' Jay Hawkins and Shirley Temple and Billy Bojangles. It's, it's fascinating. It's Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Uh, lastly, just tell me about Screamin' Jay Hawkins. He was crazy. I interviewed him. I actually got to know him pretty well. He's a nut. He's a true nut. And he was to his dying day. Um, his big hit, I mean, really his only major hit, was a great one called I Put a Spell on You. And James, by the way, just knocked it out of the ballpark, illustrating uh, what what he looked like and what, what his shows were like. But he used to arrive. I mean, he had a whole shtick that actually Alan Freed sort of suggested to him, because I put a spell on it. He was a big rock and roll hit as well, where he would dress up in this sort of cape and this sort of voodoo look. And he had a stick with a skull that he called Henry that he would carry and he would show up at the theater in a hearse with a coffin, and he, <laughs> the Apollo, the Apollo stagehands didn't like the coffin, didn't like to deal with the coffin. So a lot of times he'd have to wheel that out himself. He would actually come out on a darkened stage in the coffin, and as the opening uh, notes of "I Put a Spell on You," the dark theater would start kind of drumming with flashing lights and you'd have a spotlight on the coffin in the middle of the stage and then all of a sudden the, the coffin lid would open and he would pop out of the coffin start singing I put a spell on you and, and Jay told me that 
the first time he did it at the Apollo, he said it freaked people out so much that literally they were running out of the theater. He said they were. He he claims that you know people tore the chairs out. You know, just running over the back of back of the chairs to get out. They were so freaked out by by this show. But that was his shtick, and it was it was quite a show to see. That's a riot. I have I have one more question I forgot to ask you about, but. This man was influential in uh, developing a lot of different artists and also with folk music artists, Bob Dylan in particular. John Hammond used to work at the Apollo. He didn't work at the Apollo, but he was very friendly with Frank Schiffman uh, back in the day uh, in the 30s and all the way through to, to you know, in the 60s when, when Frank was still there. He almost, and he, he, he was approached by when the Apollo first opened, about a year before the Schiffman team came in, there was another outfit that was that tried to run it that actually started it. They couldn't do it, so they approached John Hammond to run it, and he accepted. And as he told me, he was another one I interviewed. He told me literally on his way to sign the papers, he got a telephone call saying that Sidney Cohen, the owner at that time, had just died of a heart attack. So the teal literally fell apart just as he was about to go sign the papers. One thing led to another, and the shipments took over. So Hammond never actually worked there, but he knew them very well. He was there all the time. He was also the one, by the way, who convinced, and he really had to convince Frank Schiffman to play Aretha Franklin as a pop singer. Aretha, of course, was, was a gospel singer uh, with, with her father, and she didn't really have a track record. She had done those first early records with Hammond at Columbia before she signed and did the famous records at Atlantic, and they really weren't very successful, uh, critically or otherwise, and he really had to twist Frank Schiffman's arm to give Aretha a shot to perform, and of course, you know, Aretha was notoriously skittish about performing, especially in those early days. She was still a teenager. And after all of this and, and, you know, basically putting his reputation on the line for her, she didn't show up for the first three days, which, of course, made Frank Schiffman, who was very, very precise about these things, livid and blamed Hammond for it. But then she came in finally on the third day and performed and just knocked everybody out. So it all ended up well. But Hammond is a guy who's had been in the middle of the Apollo forever. And of course, with Count Basie, you know, who he, he was there for Basie's Apollo debut and, and told me how, even though Basie had been making records for a while and was, was, was known, he said Basie was scared out of his mind to play the Apollo. And Hammond told me that he, when he saw Count Basie go over at that first show at the Apollo, that's when he knew that Count Basie had really arrived. I'm speaking with Ted Fox, author of the book Showtime at the Apollo, the epic tale of Harlem's legendary theater, which is now a graphic novel illustrated by James Otis Smith. Both author and illustrator is going to be at the Miami Book Fair International. Uh, to wrap you know, it up, by the way, yeah. I, I think we're going to actually have the book at the Miami Book Fair. I think we're going to we're going to have at least some for sure. So you if you're at the book fair you'll be able to at least see it and possibly even get an early version. Well, well what's your intent? What who who's your audience for the graphic novel? The audience is definitely uh, this the audience that 
is is into graphic novels, which is a younger audience. This this is what appealed to me so much. Um, you know, when my daughter, who was very very much into this and is an artist herself, kind of introduced me to that world. You know, a light bulb kind of went off over my head. It's like, oh my goodness, this is such an incredible story. This could be told this way to this new younger audience who just by by dint of their their age just they don't know they don't know some of these performers they don't know the history this is a great way to present that first and foremost to a, a younger audience anyone from i think teenagers to into their you know, into their 30s but you know i think that as you get into the book it's it's certainly a this is a 240 page book and I think it's a really actually an interesting way for anybody to uh, absorb this story. And I think you get it in a real concise, um, compelling narrative that I think lays it all out for you. But certainly the, the audience that intrigued me the most to be able to reach for this would be a younger audience. Ted Fox, author of Showtime at the Apollo, the epic tale of Harlem's legendary theater, the new graphic novels illustrated by James Otis Smith. Thank you both for taking time writing the book and drawing the book and talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>